Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you. You are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know if you are listening. In the United States, uh, we here at the Stuff They Don't Want You to Know family wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Gird yourself for those strange <laughs> conversations with your family. All of the best. Uh, remember, you don't have to eat the turkey if you don't want to. Don't let people make you feel obligated. But uh, there's, there's some good in every interaction virtually. So uh, what we wanted to talk about today is to ring in collectively surviving to another Thanksgiving by sharing some of the messages from your fellow conspiracy realists. We're going to talk about the history of the U.S. addiction to cars. And I do say that as a huge fan of all things automotive. Uh, We're going to have some fascinating thought experiments, courtesy of the driver. And we're going to kick off with, uh, <laughs> with a great question. We always talk about the phenomenon of fingers on a hand, meaning that if you see two fingers and the hand is out of frame, they look like separate things. But if you zoom out, you can see they are connected. And uh, Noel, we got a great piece of correspondence uh, pretty recently regarding a... Um, a similar example of this phenomenon or allegation thereof, we should say. Yeah, and let's not let's not forget that, you know, the middle finger is also part of the hand. <laughs> so just putting that out there. Uh, this comes to us from Cynical Syndicate, which is a great nickname. Uh, I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's great. Call me Cynical Syndicate. Feel free to read me on air. There are big companies out there today that have near monopolies in their space. Google with online search, Amazon with online shopping. In fact, the U.S. House Judiciary Committee brought forward an antitrust investigation into several big tech companies back in 2019. 
However, these monopolies extend beyond big tech. There is Luxottica with glasses and Monsanto with agriculture biotech. The list could go on and on. Here's what I wonder. Google has paid Mozilla for being the default search engine in Firefox. But how much of that is actually because Google secretly wants Mozilla to limp along so Google can claim to not have a monopoly in the browser space? That is, rather to let a competitor eat a few percentages of market share than risk the government getting up in your business. I can find ads in Bing from Google. Does Google buy ad space on Bing to make sure it keeps limping along? Or, at the extreme, could these companies be in cahoots or coerce each other to underfund their competitive products so that no one of them can take government heat? What do you guys think? Can you think of any interesting examples of companies actively propping up competitors just enough to keep them limping along so their monopoly can keep chugging? Love mm. it. Love it. That is good stuff. Controlled um, opposition. That's what it is. Please, this is this is for the group, y'all. This is for the table. I think I've got one, but I don't know if it fully applies. Do you guys remember when we talked about Ticketmaster? Mm-hmm. Of course. I feel like there's something like this happening there. I remember, I think it was the Canadian Broadcasting Company did an undercover investigation a while back into Ticketmaster's, I, I don't know what they call it, it was an exchange program, basically, to where... I I don't want to call it legal scalping, but I think, I mean, that's what it feels like to me where large order purchasers can buy tickets in bulk through this system and then sell them back through Ticketmaster. So it's almost like propping up smaller ticket sales people in order for them to still get a cut, but they are allowing the competition, but it is kind of under their umbrella still. So I don't know. It's a bit weird. That's a good one. That's a good one. Like, uh, so cynical syndicate, first off bonus arbitrary internet points for your awesome moniker. Uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of examples of this. One of the big ones, uh, as a guy who skipped lunch today is fast food, you know, yum brands owns a lot of fast food places. Right. And, uh, there, there are examples in the world of cars, Hyundai and Kia also, are like uh, I think it was a uh, ninety-seven Hyundai bought fifty fifty-one percent of Kia. Uh, the Expedia Group owns Orbitz, Hotwire, Travelocity. That's another thing. It's like the Luxottica model is not unique to sunglasses. Look at cleaning products, Procter and Gamble. They're selling you Gain. They're selling you Downey. They're selling you Cheer. They're selling you Bounce. They're selling you Tide. Well, look at Disney. I mean, all of the various studios, all roads kind of lead back to Disney when you, you know, pay enough attention. Um, But somehow, you know, that the the legal for these giant companies are doing their due diligence in such a way that they will not be accused of being a monopoly just barely. You know what I mean? Like, that's their goal is to get as close to a monopoly as possible, a.k.a. owning the largest market share without officially being considered a monopoly. But I would argue that the criteria for being a monopoly is pretty ephemeral. You know, I don't know what that is. Is there an actual formula, Ben and Matt, for what a monopoly makes? Yeah, so it depends on the country you're in, to be completely fair. Also, uh, antitrust legislation is much stronger in places like the EU than it is in places like the United States, because the people who directly profit from a monopoly also have the juice, the wherewithal, the suction, as they say on the wire, to change the legal ecosystem such that they are not breaking the law, right? You want to you wanna make sure nothing you do is a crime? Then get your hooks on the people who decide what is and is not illegal. Uh, this, like a legal monopoly, I believe is a firm that is protected in the legal system from competitors, a firm that gets a government mandate to operate as a monopoly. But you can also see, oh, another great example, cable companies, right? If you live in the U.S., your cable companies likely have already negotiated their own turf. 
with each other, right? So that's why you move to a place and maybe you really want Google Fiber. Maybe for some reason you really want Comcast or Xfinity or whatever they're calling themselves uh, in your neck of the woods. You might not be able to do that because those companies have agreed already just on their own that they won't go past, you know, 14th Street or whatever. Well, there was that whole thing, too. I think it was MCI was a company that was trying to offer long distance calling at a reduced rate. But AT&T literally controlled a lot of the equipment that they would need to have in place in order to do that. And there were some internal memos from AT&T that leaked where they were basically saying, let's choke them out before they can get to market. You know, um, so that's anti-competitive <laughs> at its finest. Um, but also like there's no rule that says you have to be nice to your competitors to a point. Right. Like it, it, that's my that's my whole thing is like, what is the actual line that you cross that at that point you are now a monopoly? And so many of these legacy companies just have a leg up that no new entrance into the space will ever have. So who, who's that guy that's on TV, the, the, the stock guy that's kind of keyed up and crazy and has a button, makes sound effects? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he's got some big energy. He's got uh, big energy. I can't remember his name, but he's on MSNBC, I think. And he said something to the effect, I think this was actually on John Oliver, where he's like, you know, yeah, Google is, is the best at what they do. Show me another company that can do it better. And then I'll be like, you know, OK, cool. They don't get a monopoly anymore. But the point that he is missing that John Oliver pointed out is that they're literally depriving anybody else of ever having that opportunity to even try. To, mm -hmm. to even get into the space at a competitive level because they own so much of the of the the means of production, I guess, for lack of a better term, or just the whole space. They just own it so lock, stock, and barrel that, it, it, and it's hard for the government to wrap their heads around and regulate it properly because it's happened so fast and government stuff happens so slow. Look at Preston Tucker, right? The Tucker 48, uh, or the Tucker torpedo. Preston Tucker went up against the big three auto manufacturers and got waxed and Congress helped. You can call it a conspiracy if it makes you feel better, folks. Uh, you can call it a conspiracy theory, rather, if it makes you feel better. But this is like, okay, uh, to your example, think of, let's think of things like Unilever, right? Unilever is a Disney all its own in terms of what it owns. Let's think of Johnson & Johnson. They're selling you Tylenol. They're selling you Motrin. They're selling you a number of other uh, like non-name brand things that include similar ingredients. Fingers on a hand to your earlier question about like what is antitrust or what what is an illegal monopoly in the U.S. It goes back to something called the Sherman Act in 1890, and that's still that's still technically the basis for most antitrust laws, and it argues that uh, well it bans any agreements and conspiracies that restrain trade and commerce. So that's stuff like price fixing, boycotts, rigging bids, you know, things of that nature. The kind of the kind of crime that uh people wear white collars for. Uh and it's also not you know, there are a lot of problems people have with how it's enforced. Like think of um, you know, vertical versus horizontal integration, right? How Henry Ford said, I want to own every piece of what eventually becomes a Ford car, right? That's mm -hmm. why. Well, that's the supply chain. That's right. also taking ownership of the supply chain. Right. Vertical and, integration. And can you begrudge someone that laid the groundwork for that so far back? Are they supposed to give pieces of that away? Like, like I mean, I, I, I sound like I'm being a, an apologist for this kind of iron fisted market kind of, you know, capitalism, but they were first to the market and they own all the pieces. So don't you have to play ball with them? And uh, it just seems like a flawed system, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's tough because of what you pointed out earlier and, and uh, cynical syndicate. Uh, we we hope these examples are helpful. And again, love that you point out Monsanto, Luxottica, and uh, and Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Uh, the The issue is if some entity 
has that stranglehold. They get first to the post, right? And they now own the door, right? If they own the door, then they get into this sort of cost-benefit analysis. Is it more bang for your buck to allow competition and improve your products and services? Or is it more bang for your buck to not so much worry about whether you're doing a good job and focus on preventing other people from getting into that space. And it happens a lot. That's why a lot of legacy technology and practices are around. And sometimes you don't see it when you're bubbled. It's about optics here, too. I mean, what uh, Cynical Syndicate is implying is that they're propping up lesser competitors and allowing them by their their good graces to exist so that they can create the illusion of competition where none actually exists because they still have their you know the glove analogy they still it's part of their glove but they're just allowing that finger to operate seemingly independently but it's to the benefit of like the regulatory optics of it all you Mm -hmm. know I mean, Coca-Cola wants Pepsi around. Pepsi wants Coca-Cola around. I, I want to talk about two things because we're talking about browsers, right? We're talking about Google Chrome and Mozilla Firefox, at least in, in that middle paragraph of what Cynical Syndicate sent to us. The reason why Microsoft got in trouble as being a monopoly back in the day was because of Internet Explorer, right? Because on their operating system, they installed Internet Explorer, It just came with the system. So users found it really difficult or it made it, it was disincentivizing anybody who had a Microsoft operating system from downloading a different browser and accessing the internet, right? It's already there. Just use the one that's there. If you want to download another one, you got to use Internet Explorer to get it anyway. Well, just to to interject really quickly, um, I I was not aware and I'm a little confused as to why uh, Google is paying Mozilla $450 million a year to be the default search engine on Firefox. Does Google own Firefox? I thought Google was Chrome. What is Google's interest in Firefox? And uh, why? Yeah, because anytime you type in your bar. Well, whatever browser you use, you just type some stuff into there and it searches. It's you have to tell your browser which search engine you want to use. I got that. That's about, right. Yeah. And and, and t- typically people aren't going to customize. They're going to go with whatever the thing that's stock because it's the path of least resistance for most. Some, oh, someone's listening on Netscape right now. Hello. How are you? Uh, the, uh, they're, well, Mozilla they're, was Netscape, right? Isn't Mozilla the little monster that was... Aren't they related, Mozilla and Netscape? We know there is definitely a conflict of interest between Firefox and Google. Uh, Cynical, you may enjoy a CNET article by Chris Sukhoyan in 2007, which talks about how Google is participating in this relationship. And for many years, since 2007, it had been considered an open secret in the world of tech that Google calls the shots for Mozilla and Firefox. Although I believe, to your point, Noel, I believe Mozilla is a nonprofit. It was sort of an open source thing. Like, so Netscape uh, was the original browser, as many of us remember from early, early internet days. It had like a sort of a nautical theme, right? Didn't it? Kind of like a like a lighthouse sort of uh, vibe. So I just looked up Netscape Mozilla, Mozilla, which was once stylized as M-O-Z colon slash slash A, uh, is a free software community founded in 1998 by members of Netscape. The Mozilla community uses, develops, spreads, and supports Mozilla products, thereby promoting exclusively free software and open standards with only minor exceptions. I may have um, misspoke earlier. So essentially, Google paid Mozilla a bunch of money to keep Google as the default search engine for Mozilla. Is that right? I don't think that's quite what our listener said. Our listener said Google, let's see, our listener said Google paid Mozilla Yep, sorry, that's correct. Google paid Mozilla for being the default search engine in Firefox. So Firefox is a product. It's it's a web browser, but not a search. It says, yeah, so th- that's why I'm confused. Like, How does propping up an, a browser protect them from being accused of having a monopoly over search? Because it's it's 
what our listener is saying is they're protecting themselves over being seen to have a monopoly over browsers. But so if they pay the money to be the default search engine within another browser, there's Google still getting what they need, you know, part of their primary business through that search and the ads on that search, by the way. Um, and Mozilla still gets to have Firefox and they get to still have Chrome and nobody can say Chrome is trying to take over everything. Right. And Firefox is also still a pretty popular browser because it has a lot of extensions that you can use that like allow it to interact with, you know, um, crypto type stuff. Like I think Firefox is also considered a little less bloated, like Google uh, Chrome is a bit of a hog, uh, a CPU hog. So I, I do think there is a, a market for um, Firefox already. Like it's sort of beloved to a degree. Anyway, um, I think this is really good food for thought and something to think about bigger picture in terms of like, are there companies that are secretly colluding with other companies to create the illusion of competition? That is interesting to me. And I think to, to all of us. So thank you, Cynical Syndicate, for your email. Um, and we will take a quick break and then come back with more listener mail. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And we have returned for any friends on Twitter. This is why uh, why your pal was slamming iced coffee uh, for <laughs> the entirety of the day. I'm wired. Uh <laughs> And uh, I wish uh, cities were wired with public transit. So here we are hearing from Mologato. Mologato, thank you for including a photo of your cat hanging out (laughs) and reading the book. Uh, Much appreciated. Uh, Always, always a fan of pet pictures. Please feel free to send your own. The weirder or more unusual your pets are, the better. We read every email we get. uh, And here's what Mologato says. Greetings and salutations, fair podcast host. On a recent episode, I believe about the deep dive into food deserts, one of you all made a comment about Marta being only profitable on the Buford Highway route. That was me. Uh, Now, I'm not from Atlanta, but I've been listening to Stuff You Should Know and Stuff They Don't Want You to Know for a decade, so I have a vivid image of Atlanta in my mind. Your public transit comment got me thinking about the GM streetcar conspiracy, where GM and others monopolized the production of parts sold to National City Lines Transit. I'm from Metro Detroit. We don't really have public transportation. We have smart buses that show up 10 to 20 minutes late, and if you need them as your primary form of transportation, it will take you several hours to get 10 miles. The big three... Those are that's the nickname for the big three car companies in the U.S. Historically, Uh, the big three have continuously stifled the growth of public transit in the metro Detroit area because it could hurt the sale of cars. Last week, GM announced that all its employees were going to have to return to the office. I suspect remote workers means less car wear and tear and less car purchases from employees. Ooh, I like it. Uh, The big three have long been in control of many aspects of Michiganders' lives. This is just the latest example of their overreach. I'd love to hear you guys do an episode on why the U.S. is so car-centric. When so many other places have bike lanes and trains, we lack the infrastructure. Is it poor planning or is it something more? Feel free to read on air. Much love, Mologato. Oh man, you guys know this is this is one of those ones for me, as they say on the LA Leakers. Uh, it's strange, right? One of, if not the most powerful country on the planet, the country that made the interstate happen, like as a matter of national defense. The country that can pour billions of dollars into sending weird autonomous ships into space can't get a decent train system, can't get a bus line. You know what I mean? It feels we can fishy. get them. They just don't work so great. Most of them. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, as folks may know, uh, Matt Knoll, you guys have been in, uh, all of us have been in areas that do have better public transit than Atlanta. What, what were the experiences? Did you feel like when you were there, did you think this is a horrible idea? No. I just Ubered everywhere. <laughs> Why sure. would you do I'm this? Sure. No, yeah, it's, that's literally the opposite of a good idea. I mean, I, I did find in, in Germany and Berlin in particular, the public transit was very spot on in terms of the arrival of these kind of streetcar type deals. And, um, incredibly efficient. New York, when you go and you don't live there, you would maybe think the same thing. People that live there might argue otherwise. Uh, There certainly are. It's an aged infrastructure. So there's a lot of like maintenance and things that have to happen over the weekend, which causes lines to be diverted. And, you know, unless you're kind of familiar with it as a tourist, you could easily get on the wrong train on a weekend because the signs don't change. And there's like posted bills and stuff that tell you. But it it can be a little bit of a cluster F. Um, But, yeah, I mean, when it's done right, boy, is it. Boy, is it better than the alternative. Here in Atlanta, we have a very basic uh, public transit system, same with L.A., uh, that only goes in kind of like an X shape um, and doesn't really, you know, go to outlying regions. And also, once you have to start riding the bus, that's less fun because the bus is slower and less predictable and because it, you know, it depends on traffic, whereas, you know, rails and and underground things and elevated trains do not. And that's the part that makes public transit very efficient. Yeah. 
I'm agreeing with the the points you guys are making. And Matt, I have also, in a hurry, I've been using Ubers and Lyfts on work trips. It, it just it it makes things faster, uh, depending on where you are. Because sometimes just being on a bike will get you to where you need to go faster than a car, especially in uh, very dense areas like parts of Chicago or New York. Maybe not Los Angeles. Yeah, that's the that's the point I wanted to make. I think it's a tendency for our city centers to be pretty spread out. And in order to have a really good train system or even bus system, you have to have so much infrastructure installed. And all you're talking about the age of the New York City subway Mm -hmm. system. And it is aged and it's been around for a long time and it's because it was necessary. I mean, it really was needed. Um, But then if you imagine, like you're saying, L.A., a couple other places like Atlanta, those systems are so expensive to install. And many, many people are coming into that more dense area from outside of it in order to work. So just getting back to that question of like, why so many cars? Why so car centric? That's a thing that's been happening for a long time in this country. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you point that out, Matt, because I do have a few answers for this. And I won't go on a dated Dennis Miller rant here, but uh, there is a lot of history here. We have to remember mass motorization occurred in the United States way earlier than Europe. This is the home of Henry Ford and the assembly line, right? Henry Ford, famous anti-Semite, also kind of into cars. By the (laughs) mid-1930s, there was already one car for every two households. Right. And at that same exact time in history, owning a car in Europe was like a a tool of new money in aristocracy or a status mark. Right. Uh, And also, US cities were the first to uh, wide scale adopt the car, adapt the car. And the, the powers that be in government and related industries really wanted this to happen. They did things like lowering tax cost for car ownership and use. That's traditionally still higher in Europe, right? And there are a lot of people who argue it should be. And then, of course, already mentioned the interstate system, which is objectively awesome. It's crazy that that happened. Uh, And it also goes through cities, The interstate goes through cities in the U.S., places like European highway systems, a lot of them, like think of the Autobahn in Germany, they link cities. They don't cut through them. There are also a ton of government subsidies because a lot of members of uh, various iterations of Congress had money on the table in the grand casino of investment. And we know that we know that there was a huge focus. There still is a huge focus thematically on changing technology rather than attempting to incentivize and change behavior on a micro or macroeconomic scale. Uh, Well, because changing technology also makes people money. Right. Just so. Changing behavior really doesn't. It just, you know, makes people's lives better and is harder to do. It requires discipline and uh, really messaging, like very distinct messaging. Mm -hmm. And this, okay, and there's another thing, technology versus legislation. We've been saying it for years. Technology always outpaces legislation. That's not a ding on lawmakers. It's just a fact. It's kind of a ding. I admit. Okay. It's like a 43% ding. So the U.S. did have public transit. If you go to places like the um, that awesome automotive museum out in Hershey, Pennsylvania, then you will see uh, the golden era when buses were used the way that people use airplanes now. Airplanes are not the reason that public transit disappeared. What happened was that after World War II, roughly, a lot of these transit systems, there were a network of privately owned regional or city entities, right? And they were increasing their fares. They were cutting their service. They were losing riders. And so they started going out of business. And the U.S. government, Uncle Sam, in some form, would try to come along and help, but often too late. The big question about the conspiracy, you just mentioned uh, the most famous one, Molagato, which I believe is true. The idea that GM 
and other big car manufacturers laid a heavy hand on trolley systems in cities that that were working to incentivize people to get the car, right? You see your trolley system is getting crappier and crappier, and you see that cars are appearing more and more desirable and affordable. Again, fingers on a hand. Those two pressures likely came from uh, some of the same actors. And you can read all about the GM streetcar conspiracy. They did go to court. They did uh, get found culpable of some of the charges, and they paid a fine of $1. Around this time, as, as cars are becoming a thing, you run into the problem of people, children, animals, buildings getting hit, getting the snot smacked out of them, fatally, often, because this is, it was still a country full of new drivers, early adopters, right? And just look at automotive safety technology. There used to be uh, steering, oh, I'm doing the rant. Well, there used to be steering wheels that straight up had like a torpedo looking thing facing the driver, right? Seatbelts came after the car. Early adopters have always been guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. E- like, now it's like easier to not get maybe as mad about it because it's more guinea pigs in terms of tech. But back then it was guinea pigs in terms of safety, bodily autonomy, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're bringing up autonomy too. That's one of the reasons that I love cars personally is the ability to wake up one evening, one day, and just go. And you don't have to wait for a train schedule, right? there, it, it feeds into the idea of individualism that is so culturally important in this part of the world. Land of the free. Well, asterisk. <laughs> but I agree with you. Uh, there's this, this thing, though, that's bonkers, is there was a modification of behavior, but it didn't come from uh, the ground up. It didn't come from the public. Uh, it came in a Bernays-style series of PSAs to combat the growing number, the exploding number of automobile-related deaths, the powers that be decided to blame the victims. These are not human beings who got hit by an errant driver. They're jerks. pedestrians? They're jaywalking. And <laughs> oh, that's sorry, where yes. the term sorry, comes yes. from. Yeah. Right, right. Even the term pedestrian, though, has taken on a negative connotation. If something's pedestrian, it means it's sort of like, you know, basic. You know, I mean, I mean they're not the same thing. But yes, jaywalking, Ben, that, that whole concept. It was like a, a marketing smear campaign. Yeah. So imagine a lot of people are dying. Because they're being hit by these crazy machines that go super fast, where the and and the folks in charge of these machines don't a hundred percent know what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's not like a pilot license. You didn't have to log a bunch of hours with someone sitting in the shotgun seat. So Jay, the reason Jay walking came about is it came from the idea of J drivers. Back in the day, J meant being like a newbie, a rookie, a rube. Like JV, junior yeah, varsity. Exactly. Kind of, yeah, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, J walking comes about in the days when cars were still being called horseless carriages. So people are dying, and your decision is not immediately to make laws tighter around automobiles. You want to incentivize people, chase that individualism, chase that dream. So instead you say, you know, these dead people, they're kind of (laughs) rubes. Let's be honest. They're just walking out there free as a jaybird. They're not paying attention. It's on them, which is a lot like saying those people should stop standing in front of guns. That'll solve it. Uh, Which I know. Or in front of spikes on their Steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, the torpedo steering wheel. Oh, my God. I want one of those cars. Wrong place, wrong time. Uh, it was on you. You should have known better. Mm-hmm. And this now leads us to, uh, without making this full episode, you can hear me and our pal Scott Benjamin uh, talking about this on our old show, Car Stuff. Um, what this leads to in the next step is something called path dependence. Path dependence is essentially the argument that once a large group of people or entity decides to go one way, 
They reach a decision point, right? A fork in the woods to be Robert Frost about it. And they go one way. It becomes increasingly difficult for them to turn back the clock and go in another direction. You, you get to a point where you can only sort of branch out based in some part on what you have already built unless there's a catastrophe, unless there's an um, extinction-level event, or your entire infrastructure gets wiped out. So there is a great argument that the U.S. is in a path-dependent state. This does not mean that everybody who works on the auto line is a supervillain. This doesn't mean that every member of Congress is some Monty Burns-esque, you know, uh, James Bond villain. What it does mean is that over time, people made decisions that reinforced the path they were already on. And that's, I mean, it's a huge stumbling block. We could talk about it for hours. It's like confirmation bias as an individual, where you, you look at things and, and choose to pay, to spend time with sources that make you feel good about how you already feel. But this is on a much larger uh, scale when it comes to like, corporations and technology and like, you know, it's, it's a lot, has more consequences, has much farther reaching consequences. And this situation may not be, um, may not be long for the world in the U S as the rise of autonomous vehicles grows. So does the rise for infrastructure for increased control, uh, from an outside party over the vehicle that you are riding in and driving. Right. So, it's again, I'm conflicted about it on a, on a personal level because I, I know all of, like, trust me, folks, I know all the problems. All four of us know all the problems with internal combustion, with footprints, with sprawl and traffic jams. And still, probably because I spent so many formative years here, still love cars. There's nothing quite like waking up one day and saying, I'm just going to drive. I'm going to pick a direction. I'm going to drive until I hit the ocean. That is so cool. Very few people in history have ever been able to do that. Uh, so with that very conflicted answer that we hope, uh, we hope breaks down the, the highlights of why the U.S. remains so car-centric, uh, I propose we pause for a word from our sponsor and return with a message from you. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And guess what? We're going to the phone lines. We're going to hear a message from the driver. Feels like a really nice segue from the car segment. So here we go. Hey, guys. Uh, you can call me the driver. I just wanted to relate a quick story that uh, my father told me. Uh, it was regarding his brother who was in Vietnam. And one day they were sitting around after his brother had gotten back. And uh, his brother, they were having some drinks. His brother related a story where they were, him and his uh, men were taken into a room and shown a video or a film, I suppose, of what he claimed was a some sort of laser weapon that was literally cutting POWs, I don't know, uh, other enemy soldiers in half. I assume it was some sort of test. Uh, and that's really all he said. My dad said he didn't, his brother didn't really like talking about it, but I would be fascinated to know if there's any truth to that. I know laser weapons even today need to be a, the size of a truck to do any damage. Um, I intentionally haven't looked into it. I'd love to hear your guys' opinion. Love the show. Uh, and you can use my uh, voice on air if you wish. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much, the driver, for sharing that information with us. Can't wait to talk about this with you, Ben. Uh, I got a lot of questions. I think that I haven't spoken with the driver, by the way, but I have a lot of questions or like maybe additions that I'd love to get from the driver to that story. But I guess let's let's jump right in. What are your thoughts? In terms of uh, sketchy experimentation? <laughs> yeah. Well, specifically during the Vietnam War and with the lasers. I think that – so a lot of my questioning comes from that. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the timelines, or at least the official timelines of lasers and masers, the thing that they were before they were lasers, basically directed energy devices um, – lasers were were officially invented at least in the public sphere that we know of and patented in the 1960s and we're talking 1960 and only what gosh maybe six years before that that's when masers were a thing and they were uh, directing different types of energy lasers are specifically directed energy in the light spectrum uh, which is an important thing um, and then the end of the Vietnam War is 1964 so mm -hmm. there's not much time for that overlap, but it would be a pretty good time for experimentation if you were thinking maybe we could weaponize this thing right after it gets invented. Yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I love that you're pointing out the timeline because laser-guided bombs were invented or developed, we should say, by Uncle Sam during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And they they were precise. They worked. We have to remember war drives... Um, innovation concurrently with human misery, right? So, so the driver, you're you're correct. Like the story you heard uh, does have 
does have some solid evidence to it. Uh, the idea of miniaturization comes up. Like you were saying, Matt, you look at the early lasers, and those are some big boys. Those are some chonkers, oh, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, those are definitely some chonkers. Uh, if you wanted, well, I mean, even right now, because there, there are directed energy lasers that are meant to do harm. To my knowledge, I do apologize. My dog is barking in the background. She, uh, she's upset. There's she some, loves uh, lasers. She's super hype about there's it. Some, there's some fellows working on my HVAC system right now. Uh, <laughs> she's really excited. Uh, okay, so a laser right now that would be considered a laser weapon, that because they do exist to an extent, but they're not the type that are going to cut anybody in half. At least that's not acknowledged anywhere. Those things are the size of a truck. Mm -hmm. I, I'd love to hear from maybe scientists out there, people who do work in optics, people who work in this type of energy field. I'd love to know, like, what are what is the actual state of laser weaponry? Because I, I'm looking online and trying to find just what the U.S. government would state about a laser weapon and the actual capabilities. And I'm having a hard time under finding, first of all, and then understanding what I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of rarefied air sometimes. Uh, there's the, the focus on the past stuff that we can do with a little bit more accuracy, right? Not quite mm -hmm. laser guided, but there have been things declassified that are now publicly available information. There's a great article uh, in... You can find it on JSTOR, and it's free to read. It's called The Vietnam War uh, by a guy named Donald Blackwelder in 1992, and it's all about the, de the development of precision-guided bombs. And it starts with uh, laser and infrared-guided munitions in Southeast Asia during that conflict. Uh, Matt, I would further add, a little bit of fuel to the fire by pointing out that at this juncture, we can conclusively say that technological suppression exists. And te technology, like for anybody wonder who's wondering why we're vibing so hard on, I don't know, I can't find it. It's because we do know that it is completely possible for these things to exist well before they are revealed publicly. A hundred percent, right? Oh, dude. Come on, the, the Department of Defense, 35 years after the end of the conflict in Vietnam, at least America's part of it, in 1964, 35 years after that, in 1999, the U.S. government officially declared lasers as future weapons. As <laughs> okay. like, these are, these are future weapons. But that doesn't mean they weren't attempting to develop lasers into weapons like throughout the late 60s to the late 90s um it's really interesting there's this thing the last thing this thing called the joint technology office of high energy lasers is a thing that was created for the government in the year 2000 to develop laser weapons mm. or, and develop not invent oh develop. yeah also shout out invention secrecy act 1951 check it out there's a page on Lockheed Martin's website uh, devoted to lasers, harnessing the power of lasers. So, I mean, it's definitely... Show me. Where, what Does it have anything about weaponry, though? Yeah. I mean, it's got a video, directed energy, the time for laser weapon systems has come. Oh, God. Yeah, I'll, put it, I'll, I'll put it in the chat. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Because, I mean, we know lasers can do cool stuff. We know, but they have to be close range usually, I think, right? And to, to use them for long range would require more energy than an autonomous, you know, plane or vehicle could maybe have on board, perhaps, is the issue. But, yeah, look at this. Look at this thing. Laser weapon systems. Spe like uh, harnessing, it's uh, literally at, at sea, in the air, and on the ground. Lockheed Martin is developing laser weapon systems to protect war fighters on the battlefield. Combined with expert platform integration, these systems are designed to defeat a growing range of threats to military forces and infrastructure. Yeah, I would also go back further to uh, back to the 70s and 60s. We know that in 1971, Collectively, like the U.S. government and its defense contractor, Lattice, were spending $6.3 billion on advanced laser weaponry. The, uh, like, 
not to sound all conspiratorial and black Monday murders about it, but the money moves, you know, and the, uh, they're making money moves. Yes. Yeah. Just so there are field tests of this. And we know that not everybody was impressed, but we also know that a lot of people were frightened by the potential of what they saw. You know, this, like it, it would be, this is not like investigation into psychic powers, right? Or the creation of Manchurian candidates. No, this, this is not, yeah, this is not, hey, what if blah, 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 the Soviets are doing it too. Uh, kind of lollygagging. They knew that the Soviet Union was working on laser technology, right? And so they were able to prove consistent reproducible results. They knew. They knew something was up and they were still working on it. It would be naive to assume otherwise. It's just more in public now. Well, and kudos to the graphics department of Lockheed Martin. <laughs> the uh, the header image on this page that I was talking about has like a battleship at sea with a tiny laser cannon with a purple beam of light shooting up into the sky and uh, p- blowing up a plane. Yeah, yeah. I want to point something out that they that Lockheed Martin has written on their website here. Quote, as fiber laser power levels increase, our systems will be able to disable larger threats and do so across greater distances. When operated in conjunction with kinetic energy weapons, these systems can serve as a force multiplier. So what they're saying is these, well, at least uh, that's exactly what you're talking about, Ben. They're not saying it out loud. But they are not saying that these lasers are disintegrating or destroying any enemy weapon systems. They are disabling them, which is a huge difference, right? Because we're we're talking about potentially potato, in, potato. <laughs> well, well, no, no. It's it's yeah. regarding this voicemail that we got. It's a story about an uncle who's engaged in the Vietnam War, being shown a film of lasers back then cutting through enemy soldiers, like cutting them in half, which we're, we're just trying to discuss. Would a laser ever have the power to do that? Could it even it? I mean, I I think if we're using the word could, then absolutely it could, right? The question is when does humanity, right? Arrive at this, at this ability. Uh, We also have to remember the U S was up to all sorts of mad science during the Vietnam War. Agent Orange is real. Cloud seeding is real. They changed the movements of the sky. You know, this is this is like some, you got so involved in whether you could do it that you didn't ask whether you should kind of kind of stuff. That's the uh, water. Should isn't in. part of the equation because should implies responsibility. Should implies some sort of moral, you know, calculation that doesn't typically come into play in these scenarios. Um, it, you know, what it makes me think of is, is that, uh, that show and amazing comic series, the boys where they use superheroes in Vietnam as weapons and, you know, laser eyes are like slicing through, you know, enemies. And they also have like a big debacle where they accidentally blow up the wrong thing and create like an international, you know, uh, event of some sort. Um, the last thing I, I want to read from this site is, uh, a quote from, Paul Shattuck, the director of Directed Energy Systems, he says, quote, our beam control technology enables precision equivalent to shooting a beach ball off the top of the Empire State Building from the San Francisco Bay Bridge. So that's the kind of big picture future stuff, doomsday type stuff that I think, you know, science fiction has taught us to fear. Uh, you know what? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I just, I got a soundbite from that same website, you guys. They use the phrase, a surgical scalpel, when talking about one of their tactical lasers. So, And then they could also argue that's going to reduce collateral damage because they can literally laser focus on targets and, you know, like from a far distance, take out one target or, or mm-hmm. one, you know, as opposed to broad stroke drone attacks that, you know, kill lots of people and even drones are, are, are a more focused version of that you know it's definitely better than like dropping a nuke you know it could use one of these laser systems ben what's that the x-37b oh god yeah yeah totally you know get a little like uh get a case of dia maker on there just in case someone someone really is camping out there yeah 
uh, <laughs> the, the, maybe they will use the Helios system, which has been delivered to the U.S. Navy, sixty kilowatt high energy laser. Right, that's the that's the yeah. Lockheed, right? Yeah, yeah the Helios, Helios solution. Yeah. yeah. Uh, funny Ooh, call it that word solution though is weird because it makes me think of the final solution you know uh the air force also got something from lockheed the lance laser advancements for next generation compact environments smallest airborne laser weapon system publicly admitted today that that was as of uh september 19th this year wow oh uh, here here's the other thing we want to learn the driver and maybe you can just write to us conspiracy at iheartradio.com we'd love to know what branch of military your uncle was in and mm-hmm. at what level uh he was operating right so like what's the rank like what what was he doing because that might inform how we feel about the the story of the film because maybe he was right on to something mm-hmm. yeah just so Quite possibly. And, you know, maybe it's unfair logically to say, well, the U.S. was getting up to a bunch of mad science during that conflict uh, because war drives mad science. And just because there was experimentation in one unorthodox approach doesn't necessarily mean that all the stories about the other stuff are true. We just have to say that. But also, again, technological suppression is real. It is real. National Invention Secrecy Act, 1951. Please, 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 you've heard us mention it before. Look it up, right? Start asking why there's not more about it in the public sphere. And that's, I don't know, Matt, is that where we leave it today before we get lasered? We drop it right now because I'm, you know, I'm getting my heat fixed right now. So I'm not feeling particularly warm yet. But if I heat up real fast, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I'll let you all know. (laughs) <laughs> there, it is. there it is and and let us know what you think folks as always thanks for tuning in we hope this finds you uh if you're a u.s resident uh we hope this finds you amid a wonderful thanksgiving with your friends and family if you're not in the u.s we hope you're having an amazing day or evening as well most importantly We'd like to invite you over to our house digitally. Uh, we can't wait to hear stories from you. We try to be easy to find online. Send your tales uh, to us online at Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. That's right. We also have a phone number, one eight three three S T D W Y T K. When you call in, you've got three minutes. Give yourself a nickname. Let us know if we can use your voice and message on the air. Those are the only rules, I think, right? I think so. Jokes are fun. Personal stories like the one the driver just sent in are really great. I I don't know about you guys. I very much enjoy just talking with you all about those kinds of stories and evaluating them in a way. Uh, we, We love personal stories like that. Please send them our way. If you've got something that can't fit in three minutes in that voicemail system, why not instead send us an email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.